Our scripture reading for today is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Listen now to the word of the Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. The Lord be with you. Thank you. It's good to be back in the building and to have uh, the special hybrid service this morning uh, to ordain and install a grace uh, to active service on session. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to gather as your people to worship and to celebrate. And now in the hearing of your word, strengthen us empower us, help us to be renewed, to be challenged, and to be your people in faithful witness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is now the fourth sermon uh, in a series of sermons I've been preaching through the season of Lent, and we continue to reflect on what it means for us to be the church as we live out our discipleship through a renewed commitment to Jesus Christ and to one another. As our book of order states, the ministry of members involves every aspect of our lives and includes a call to review and to evaluate the integrity of our membership and to consider ways in which our participation in the worship and service of the church may be increased and made more meaningful. We affirm the priesthood of all believers, and in the vows we take in becoming members, we covenant with one another to share in the worship and in the ministry of this church. Last Sunday, we were reminded that we, the church, are the body of Christ. Now you, that is all of you, collectively, together, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Each of us has a vital and unique part in the body of Christ because it is God who calls and it is God who creates the body, the church. God is the one who arranges, who composes, and who anoints each member to fit perfectly together so that the body of Christ may be complete, unified, and one. And at the same time, just as the human body has all sorts of different parts, ears, eyes, feet, and so on, we also, as the body of Christ the church, are made up of many different and differing members. And just as the body needs the unique contributions of each of its parts, we also need the particular gifts, the talents, and the unique experiences that each of you brings to the one whole body of Christ to function properly and healthily. This is our common calling. Through the waters of baptism, 
God, by his grace, brings us together to work out our discipleship as servants of the servant Lord Jesus Christ in the body through the church. And within this body, within this community of this church, there are particular moments when some are called to a particular service, such as that of the office of elder. Today, as you heard, we will be ordaining and installing Hope's mom into active service on session as a ruling elder of this church. It seems fitting to me, at least, that we finally have someone named Grace serving on session of a church named Grace Way. In the message you just heard, Pastor Dohi gave us a really good explanation and overview of what the church, the elders, and ordered ministry are all about. And so this morning, I want to reflect with you instead just on one particular aspect of ordination, and that is the laying on of hands. First of all, I know that ordination doesn't happen very often, so let me give you a little bit of background. The word to ordain or ordination itself does not appear very often in most English translations of the Bible. But when it does, it is a translation of not one word, but of several different words, which are also sometimes translated with words like appoint, to choose, assign, pick, consecrate, and so on. Taken together, the basic idea to ordain someone is to set them aside for an office or for a special service. Ordination confirms what God has already done or is doing in calling those for that particular service. For example, we see that this is what was done with the Levites. In Numbers chapter 8, we read, When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel, that they may do the service of the Lord. They were chosen by God, and the laying on of hands publicly acknowledged that calling from God and commissioned them to that task in leading the people of God in the worship of God. Now, one of the more interesting words in the Old Testament that gets translated as ordained comes from the root word for hand, for hand. So the link between ordaining someone and laying hands on someone is found in the word itself. To ordain is to lay on hands. And the understanding is that the hand, and particularly the right hand, signifies authority and is practically synonymous with power. For example, in the song celebrating God's deliverance of the Israelites from their years of slavery in Egypt, the people praise God with words like these in Exodus 15. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So the laying on of hands or ordination points toward this, this presence of power and authority. We see this, for example, when God commands Moses to pass on the mantle of leadership to Joshua and to do so publicly with the laying on of hands. It was a way of commissioning Joshua for the special task ahead and to help legitimize his leadership before the people. Later in Deuteronomy 34, we see that this is indeed what happened. 
And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. This practice of laying on hands was followed by the early church when they designated or ordained members of their community for special service. In the book of Acts, for example, when there were complaints about the distribution of food among the widows, the apostles chose seven men with a good reputation. And after praying, they laid their hands on them and commissioned them for that task. Likewise, the church would lay hands on others like Paul and Barnabas for special ministries to which they were called. And in our scripture reading today, you heard of another instance of the laying on of hands. Paul reminds Timothy of the time when he laid his hands on him, echoing, I think, this laying on of hands from the older Moses to the younger Joshua. We also find in his earlier letters to Timothy that the apostle Paul twice mentioned the laying on of hands. In 1 Timothy 4, he wrote, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This appears to have been a separate occasion when not just Paul, but the council of elders, the presbytery, laid their hands on him. And in 1 Timothy 5, he also advises Timothy, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. So it appears in the New Testament that the laying on of hands for special service was normative in the early church as it followed the earlier practices of the Old Testament. And this is the practice that most churches continue to follow today, including us. In our faith tradition, all ordination for ministers, for elders and deacons, it requires the laying on of hands. Now, a few months ago, after Grace was elected uh, at our congregational meeting to serve as an elder, I wasn't sure if we would be able to have an in-person service today and to actually lay hands on grace. And so just in case we couldn't, I checked with our presbytery to see, would it be possible, is it allowable to ordain someone virtually without the laying on of hands? They gave me a hard no. And I'm very glad they did. Had they allowed it, I would have argued against it. It's important that we lay on real hands on a real person in ordination. And I think because of what we have had to endure this past year together, it is even more important that we gather together to lay on hands. I know all of you have come to more deeply appreciate the importance of that, the importance of our bodies, of our physicality, and the value of a human touch, and not just in ordination. From the moment we are born, we are held and touched, and such human contact is not optional, but absolutely vital for our well-being. If nothing else, the laying on of hands is a reminder that we can confer this blessing to one another through touch, just as Jesus did when he laid his hands on the children to bless them. 
And I think it is a blessing that we need more than ever today. Think about the time, the last time that someone prayed for you. For many of you, it was probably on Zoom. And while you appreciate people praying for you virtually, it was probably not entirely satisfying. Now think back to the last time someone prayed for you in person. That was better, wasn't it? Now think back to the last time someone prayed for you while they laid their hands on you. Nothing formal like an ordination, but perhaps during a time of distress or grief when someone placed their hand on your shoulder or held your hands as you're struggling with sorrow. That was better, I'm sure. You know, I can remember um, when our kids were little and my wife and I were trying to uh, get them to sleep by themselves alone in bed. And uh, we would, you know, lay down next to them. You know, we read them a story. We would pray for them. And then we would try to reassure them that they were old enough and quite capable of sleeping alone on their own without us next to them. Well, sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't or wouldn't. One time, one of our boys, and uh, you can probably guess which one of my boys, admitted that he was a little bit afraid to sleep by himself. And so he asked if I could stay in bed until he fell asleep. And so I tried to reassure him that he wasn't alone, that God was with him and that he could sleep by himself. And then he said one of those things that I think parents will never forget. He said, Appa, Daddy, I can't see God too good. Like a good pastor's kid, he said it almost apologetically as if he should see God better. You'll be happy to know that I resisted the urge to correct his grammar. What he was saying was that he wanted a body, some physical presence to reassure him, and not just an ideal of God, which he didn't really understand. And so I, I stayed by his side. What I didn't tell him then is that the truth is that most of us, most of the time, don't see God too good. So God helps us. God helps us in a variety of ways. And one of the best ways that God helps us is by giving us visible, tactile, concrete signs of his presence, of his promises. Like the waters of baptism, real, wet water. Like the bread and the wine in communion, real bread real wine, and like the laying on of hands, real hands. It's not just words. Our faith is not just about ideas. It's something tangible, concrete. It's anti-virtual. This is why Jesus so frequently laid his hands on people when he healed them. He certainly didn't need to do that. And he wasn't just accommodating to people's superstitious beliefs 
to, you know, that there was some magical power in his hands or something like that. Certainly, if he wanted to, he could have healed everyone from a distance, as he did in the case of the centurion's servant. We know he could have done that. And yet, healing by touch was his usual practice of healing. Luke, for example, tells us that Jesus laid his hands on every person that was sick and was brought to him for healing. Again and again, we see this in the scriptures. He didn't need to do that in order for them to be healed, but he did it intentionally because he understood the incredible power of the human touch, of the laying on of hands, especially for those who had been considered ceremoniously unclean and had been isolated from communities of worship. Thanks to COVID in this past year, we have all now had at least a small taste of what it feels like to have people avoid us, people afraid to touch us because of fear of the spread of contagion. And yet, isn't this what the incarnation is all about? Jesus is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. Not virtually, not remotely, but actually. One who is really present. For all who can't see God too good, Jesus says, here I am. And it's not just in the incarnation. After the resurrection, Jesus reassured his disciples, telling them in Luke 24, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Maybe you can't even trust your eyes because the resurrection is so mind-blowing. But he was telling them that the incarnated Jesus that they had known and loved and touched is the resurrected Christ that they can also continue to know and to touch. He is really present. He is not just a figment of their imagination or wishful thinking. The Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, I'm not really sure what a spiritual body is going to be like exactly, but what I do know is that it is a body, a body that can be touched and embraced. Our eternal destiny is not to leave our bodies, to escape the limitations of our physicality and become wispy ghosts floating around among the clouds. As the Apostles' Creed also reminds us, we confess that we believe in the resurrection of the body, not just the resurrection of the soul or of the spirit, but of the body. I think this is why the lockdown has been particularly hard for us. It's not that we just miss having our kids out of the house for at least a little part of the day. It's not that we just miss eating out or having new experiences throughout the week. It's not even that we miss the everyday social interactions that we have with other people. Those are all, of course, important. But what we really miss, perhaps without even realizing it, is the simple physicality, the bodily presence of others 
and human contact. Earlier this week, my wife and I had a chance to visit uh, some of our church family members that we hadn't seen uh, for some time. And when we arrived, one of them asked right away, can I give you a hug? And I didn't hesitate. It's one of the few times in the last 12 months that I actually hugged someone outside my immediate family. I can tell you that brief moment felt like this incredibly luxurious gift. To be human is to be embodied, to hold and to be held, to embrace and to be embraced. Even God's very creation of male and female, I think, speaks to this. It's not just about marriage, male and female. It's not even just about our need for uh, as social beings. When Adam saw Eve and he said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, he was acknowledging the physicality of their being. To be human is to be bones and flesh, corporeal, to be enfleshed. The laying on of hands in ordination speaks to this and reminds us who we are, what we are, and whose we are. The body of Christ and individually members of it. Let me close with this. I know that um, some of you, at least, have seen the movie Minari, which is getting a lot of critical acclaim and attention. For those of you who haven't seen it yet, uh, according to Wikipedia, the plot follows a South Korean, a family of South Korean immigrants who try to make it in rural America during the 1980s. I've not seen it yet, but I read a really interesting article that the director of the movie, Lee Isaac Chung, uh, to explain how he got the idea for this movie. He writes that he's not a mystical kind of person at all, but that one day, struggling as a filmmaker, he was sitting in a coffee shop and desperate for a new approach because nothing was working. He decided to close his eyes and just to listen to what he might hear. And he said that after a time, he heard two distinct words and they were clear to him because they were two unfamiliar words. And the two words that he heard was willa gather. He was embarrassed that he didn't know who that was, but he soon discovered that willa gather is a renowned novelist and he began to read her writings. And he learned that she began her writing career by trying to imitate famous writers who had written about New York high life, high society, and she found that unfulfilling in her own life and in her writings. And so at one point, she decided that she was going to write about her own experiences, not about others, drawing upon her own memories of her own life in the Midwest. Looking back, she said this, life began for me when I ceased to admire and began to remember. 
Life began for me when I ceased to admire and began to remember. And Lee Isaac Chung says that the idea to write Minari likewise began for him when he ceased to admire and began to remember. Instead of admiring the stories of others, life began, the movie began, when he remembered his own story. He came to understand that his story is worth remembering and worth sharing. Perhaps the words of the Canadian Chinese theologian, Kitty Huang, are even better and simpler. I remember, therefore I am. This, I think, is what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he reminds Timothy of when hands were laid on him. Remember when hands were laid on you. You know that this letter is the last letter that Paul wrote toward the very end of his life. And isn't it interesting that he's remembering in his last moments, this moment when he laid his hands on Timothy. And I'm intrigued by the fact that not only does Paul remember the laying on of hands, but along with it, he's remembering many other things. He remembers his prayers for Timothy. He remembers Timothy's grief. He remembers his affection for and longing for Timothy. He remembers Timothy's faith and the faith of his family that helped to shape that faith. He's remembering his story entwined in the story of Timothy's, what we might call a testimony. In his remembering, he wants Timothy to remember when hands were laid on him and what an incredible blessing that was. And maybe he's telling him to remember that whatever difficulties you may be facing, that you need not fear because God has given you a spirit of power and love and self-control. Remember that, he's telling him. This morning, like Paul, as I look at this congregation, I'm also remembering. I'm reminded of a retreat back in 1991, more than 30 years ago, where I first met Grace and Steve, Pastor Dohi, and a few other people in this room. We were much younger then. I certainly had more hair. Who could have imagined then that we would all be gathered here together this morning for this occasion? When Grace and I met to prepare for this moment, the first thing we did, the first day, the first two hours, we talked about her story, about what it is that led her to this moment, that her story matters. And to remember together all the people, all her friends, her family, pastors, that have helped to shape her faith and to bring her to this moment. Being here, I'm reminded of previous elder ordinations in this room and also in the chapel over there and in other places of worship that our church has gathered together over the last several decades. And I remember also my own ordination and that of our first three elders in our chartering service 
way back in 2003. And I'm reminded of an ordination service I attended before I myself was ordained. That ordination service, I don't even remember who it was for, but I remember it because it happened in the middle of winter and most people could not make that service because there was a big snowstorm and people just could not travel safely. When I got there, one of the ministers, one of the few ministers that managed to be there told me that I was about to witness perhaps the most important ordination I will ever see in my life. And when I asked him why, he told me that it's because the devil pays attention to ordinations. He said that if the devil thinks that the person being ordained is going to be special, someone who is extra holy, someone who's going to make a big difference in the kingdom of God, the devil will work extra hard to prevent that ordination, like creating a snowstorm. I remember that story when I got ordained. I was hoping for bad weather. <laughs> As I recall, it was a beautiful day. <laughs> and it made me think I'd better work extra hard from now on to make sure that the devil regrets not paying more attention to me <laughs> at my ordination. Maybe the devil, Grace, is working overtime right now. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. But maybe something special lies ahead for you and for this church in this season. This has certainly been the most difficult ordination service we have ever had to organize. On top of everything else, we had to wake up an hour early. <laughs> <laughs> but that we are here speaks to God's power, God's goodness. And I know that the laying on of hands today will have more meaning under these circumstances. It will help us to remember. Many of you, I hope, will not soon forget today's ordination. This hopefully will be the last time, the only time, we will ordain someone while wearing masks when our entire church cannot be present to celebrate together. It is sad and unfortunate that not everyone can be here physically together and that we cannot more boisterously celebrate this day. But at the same time, we can also be thankful that these unusual circumstances will make this moment more memorable, a part of our entwined story and testimony that we can look back to and remember. God has given us a spirit of love and of power, not of fear. Let today be a reminder, not only of the deprivations we have gone through, but a reminder of God's faithfulness, that we are here, that we are called together to this life, that we've been given a common mission, and that we are once more able to confer a blessing by the laying on of hands. In the years to come, when you grow weary, when you face fears, remember this moment and encourage one another with this story of our shared life 
that God has given us his spirit. Remember that in ordination, in the laying on of hands, we are not performing a meaningless, superstitious ritual. There is no magical powers in my hands or anyone else's that we are transferring to grace. But there is spiritual power being made concrete, made tangible in that laying on of hands. Ordination, the laying on of hands, is this visible reminder of God's grace who calls, who redeems, and who empowers us to live a life of faithful witness and embodied service. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Almighty God, you have called us to be your people, to be the body of Christ in this world. Help us to embody your truth and grace. You have made us, each and every one of us, unique for yourself. Help us to remember our shared story, that they are important as is our shared story because you made us for yourself and we are valuable in your sight. Hold us in your loving hands, even as we embrace others in your love. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.